And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to talk about travel. But we want that conversation to be rich and broad. And so we're inviting you, the listener, to contact us uh, and maybe appear on the show. In the past, we found guests that way. We've had people come on and ask questions. There's a lot of ways you can participate. So just email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. I also want to give a little bit of a reminder. It's not a time of travel right now. Uh, We are uh, filming this or taping this, I should say. At the end of April, there's a shelter in place or where we are and in many parts of the country. So we're not on air to advocate flying off tomorrow, Uh, but we are on air to advocate traveling someday and to travel in your mind to virtual places all around the world. And to help you do that, we hope you'll visit us at Fromers.com. We've got fabulous articles there about the nitty-gritty of of travel right now, which might mean how to complain to the federal government about an airline or how to get a refund on travel, uh, to fun things like the best travel movies to watch, the best podcasts to listen to, uh, the best live streams to watch that will take you out of your kitchen or your living room or wherever you're sheltering. And because of that, we're doing this show in a little bit of a different way. Instead of having different guests, we're concentrating on one great traveler and travel writer per week. And boy, did we hit the jackpot this week. This week, our guest is Don George. He is one of the most respected, beloved fascinating travel writers in the business. He has a wonderful book out called The Way of Wanderlust, which is a collection of his wonderful essays. He also, uh, well, he'll he'll tell us about the other things he does. Let me stop blabbing and and introduce John, Don. Hey, Don, so nice to have you on the show. Hello, Pauline, and, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. You could have just kept blabbing and blabbing. I would have been very happy to listen. Oh, well, <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Of course, <laughs> and it's great to be talking with you. So let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved with travel? How did you become the Don George we all know and love? <laughs> um, <laughs> I was born in a log cabin, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, I... I think I was bitten by the travel bug pretty early because my parents loved to travel and passed that on to me. The um, the very first international trip I ever took, my, my parents took me and my brother to Paris and London, uh, which was kind of prophetic. Uh, Paris ended up being a, a hugely important part of my life. And in college, between my junior and senior years in college, I was able to uh, live in Paris on the something called the Princeton Summer Work Abroad Program, and I was uh, working as a actually as kind of a tour guide and translator in Paris. Wow, you knew enough summer. about Paris 
to do that? <laughs> was I learned fake? a lot about. <laughs> I knew just enough more than the Americans that I was taking around. Right. And I learned very, very quickly. Um, and it was a, it was a job I was doing for a. Believe it or not, the company I was working for sold farm equipment, but it was headquartered <laughs> in Paris. Wow. And American American executives, especially from the Midwest, would come to Paris and they would very, very often bring their, their it was always men, and they would bring their wives and sometimes their children. And so when I arrived for my summer work program, the president of the company said, Donald, what, what we would like you to do is to take the Americans around parents, show them a very good time, talk to them about the history and the culture. Donald, do you think you can do that? <laughs> I said, yes, I think I can do that. Wow. So my first, my first job was showing Americans a good time around Paris. Now, when you went to and, Princeton, did you know you were going to be getting into travel and writing? Is that why you decided no. to go to Paris? No. Uh, not into travel. I mean, I, I knew I loved travel, but I didn't know that I could actually make a living doing something related to travel. I wanted to be a poet, which... Huh. as you know, is an extremely lucrative profession. <laughs> kind of um, like being a travel writer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I was studying French, English, and American literature and um, creative writing and writing poetry. And then I went to Paris and I sort of fell in love with the idea of living in a foreign country. After I graduated, I went back to Paris for the summer and I got a one-year fellowship to teach at Athens College in Greece. Huh. right out of Princeton. So um, I went to Paris for the summer, and then I went to uh, Athens for a year, and that totally planted the wanderlust seed that just kept blossoming and blossoming. I fell in love with the world and being out in the world, and um, and then I began to write stories just because I was traveling, and I could write poetry, but also I just began to write articles about what I was doing, and some of those got published, and that was sort of the beginning of what led to my being a travel writer. It was a very organic process. And your your first big job, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, was at the San Francisco Chronicle, right? As as their travel right. editor? Uh, as a, originally as a travel writer. Ah. And that was a crazy serendipitous series of uh, things, but I... So after Greece, I came back to the United States. I got a master's degree in creative writing um, from Holland's College in Virginia, and then didn't know what to do with my life, and got a two-year fellowship through Princeton to teach at a university in Tokyo. This is the Princeton in Asia program, and that sent people into Asia for two years. And I was teaching at the university in Tokyo and uh, loved that, had an absolutely wonderful, amazing time in Japan. But my fellowship ended and I came back to the States and I was, I came to the Bay Area just because growing up in Connecticut, I'd always heard that San Francisco was an amazing, beautiful place. And I thought, well, this is a good chance to try it. And quite, quite crazily, it's a long story, but to make the long story short, I, um, walked into the office of Japan Airlines one day and said, I wonder if by any chance you send writers to Japan <laughs> because I'd love to write a story about Japan. And, and the person in the office said, well, actually, funny you should walk in right now. Go directly right now. Leave our office and go to the office of 
the Japan National Tourism Organization, which is right in another part of San Francisco. I went there and I talked to someone there and he said, hmm, interesting that you should come in right now. Could you come back at five o'clock tonight? I came back at five o'clock and they said, this was on a Friday. They said, can you go to Japan on Monday? Oh my goodness. And it turned out they had a press, they had a press trip all set to go to Japan. Someone had called that morning and said, I can't do it. I'm sorry. Everything was reserved for this person. And they just slotted me into that person's slot. On this trip to Japan, I met someone who was a really great Bay Area travel writer. Um, a couple of months later, this is a long, serendipitous tale. I I, um, I sent a story to the San Francisco Chronicle travel editor and called her up out of the blue and said, you don't know me, but I sent you this story and I'm just wondering what the status of the story is. And she said, I don't know anything about your story, but I was just talking to someone who knows you, this woman, Shirley Faulkner, who knows you. She met you on this press trip to Japan, and I'd really like to meet you. And I said, okay. And it turned out that the woman I was talking to, Georgia Hess, was the legendary travel editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, yes. She was planning to take a one-year leave of absence. She had called Shirley Faulkner and said, would you like to take my place while I'm away? Shirley said, no, I'm too busy, but I just met this nice young man on a press trip to Japan. Oh, my might goodness. might be perfect to take over your job. <laughs> you know, Don, you and I uh, often, well, thanks to you, you you run a wonderful writer's conference at the, the wonderful bookstore, uh, Book Passage in Corte Madera, California. And uh, you often say, or somebody there says, there's something about jumping just jump first and you will get caught. I mean, that's what your story right. is reminding me of. What, what's the phrase I'm thinking of? Leap and, leap and you'll find the net, I think. Something like that. Leap yeah. first and the net will appear. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing story. So I ended up taking Georgia Hess's place at the newspaper for a year as a travel writer. And that's what really changed my life totally. I, I've been a travel writer ever since then. So it was a good way to start. Yeah. <laughs> a very, I mean, it's just one. Well, it's either your story is either about serendipity or it's about how we all should go to Princeton because they have some amazing <laughs> programs that just allow their students to, to traipse the world. I'd still have that <laughs> Ivy League pedigree that makes them seem like they're doing it for serious reasons. <laughs> it was pretty amazing in both of those the Asia Fellowship was especially amazing it was actually designed for people who hadn't studied East Asian studies as undergraduates but somehow were now interested in learning more about Asia after living in Europe for a year I knew that the best way to learn about a place was actually to live there so I thought wow Asia yeah, on that note, we have to take our first break. For anybody tuning in late, we are speaking to Don George, travel writer, par extraordinaire. You can read a collection of his essays. It's called The Way of Wanderlust. Don't turn that dial. We'll be right back with more.
Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. We're taping this at the end of April, and I'm telling you that because things are changing hourly uh, because of this pandemic. Uh, You'll be hearing this in May and perhaps later. Uh, But um, on the phone, we have travel writer, par extraordinaire, Don George. He is the author of The Way of Wanderlust, as well as countless articles, blogs, and other works about travel. And we were just speaking with Don about how he got started. Now, Don, you lived in Greece for a year. You lived in Japan. Did you learn the languages? And do you think language study is intrinsic to getting to know a place deeply? I went, so when I went to Paris, first of all, I, I was pretty proficient in French because I'd been studying French since, um, I don't know, probably sixth grade or so. Um, so that was pretty good. And when I went to Athens, I didn't know a word of Greek. And I part of my fellowship there, my teaching fellowship, was actually studying Greek. So I, mm. I learned enough Greek that I could go into a Greek mountain village and say a few words and have women come out and just say, oh, you are my son kind of thing. And because the Greeks <laughs> are so incredibly friendly and kind and generous. And, and knowing the language, house. do you think it was just that they were <laughs> incredibly enough. kind and friendly or that you knew enough language to show your respect mm. for their culture? I think both. I think both. I mean, I think they're incredibly kind and friendly to everybody, but I knew enough Greek that I, it, it made it seem that I was... Um, well, I mean, I was super respectful of the Greek culture, and so they really responded to that. They would sit me down and feed me baklava and bring out photo albums and say, you know, this is my cousin. He's a policeman in Detroit. Maybe you know him. <laughs> no, I don't know him. But, um, so that was nice. And then when I went to Japan, I also, I knew sayonara. That was about the only word of Japanese that I knew. Uh, but I did study Japanese um, in Japan, but really it was kind of on the road studying. It was in the street studying. I had a notebook that I would carry with me wherever I went. And I was just constantly writing down phrases and asking questions. Um, but I didn't do formal classroom study there, but absolutely, absolutely knowing a language helps you get into the heart and soul of the culture and helps you meet people you couldn't otherwise meet and communicate with them. Um, I believe that very deeply. It, it, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't travel somewhere if you don't know that place's language. You should go there anyway. But I think that if you can speak the language, even just rudimentarily, um, it really helps open up doors and open up hearts. And then the more deeply you can speak, the more deeply you can get inside the culture and really have a rich, nuanced appreciation of it. We are speaking with Don George, who is the author of The Way of Wanderlust, a fabulous collection of essays about places all over the world. And I know, Don, that you feel certain destinations are the touchstones for you, are the the places that you return to over and over. I know that you go to Japan most every year and lead tours there. How How is leading a tour to Japan different than just traveling and what when you lead a tour what are you trying to give to your clients that's a great question and one of the things i've come to think through the years is that as a travel writer all my life i've been trying to open up cultures to people and be a bridge of connection and help my readers understand the place more deeply and 
and compassionately and empathetically and, and just really kind of appreciate what it's all about. And I've realized that as a tour guide, that's also exactly basically what I'm doing, but on a very, very personal face-to-face level, which is very nice because as a writer, you write a story and it goes out into the world and you're lucky if you get a, 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 an email from a reader saying this moved me greatly. But as a, as a tour guide, it happens right in front of you on a daily basis. You can see people changing and appreciating and learning. So I really love showing people my Japan. Um, I lead tours for a company called Geographic Expeditions, um, GOX, um, that go all the way to my wife's home um, village and also the home island of Shikoku, which is the, mm. the smallest of the four main Japanese islands. So we get way off the beaten track. We go out there and have a really special experience because not that many foreigners go there. And I've gotten to know the people through the years. So they're always thrilled to see me and I'm thrilled to see them. And, and what I love is that my guests feel like they're already part of the family because I'm that bridge. I'm the connection. And so the American travelers come and they're already warmly embraced and accepted as friends of Don. And so it becomes a really special night experience for everybody. And for I love somebody... the fact that Go ahead. Sorry, Sorry. I was just gonna say I love the fact that the, the local people are just as excited about it as <laughs> the Americans are. Well they, so they probably don't they, get many visitors in Chicago. I they would think. don't. I mean we're a breath of fresh air. We're sort of bringing the world to them. So why they'll often do tell you... me we've been we've been up all morning. We've been up all morning anticipating your coming. We're so excited. <laughs> we're <laughs> so why do you go, though, beyond the fact that you know it and your wife is there? What is the experience like in Shikoku? What do you see? Are there historic sites to see or is it all about the local culture? And how does the local culture differ from what we experience here in the United States? Like, how does a family and their interactions differ in Japan? Um, I would say that the the big reason is because it's such a different Japan from what people imagine. I think in the United States, we say Japan and people think Tokyo and Kyoto and um, maybe a couple of other big tourist sites, Osaka, Kamakura, places like that. But they don't think about the, the rural life in Japan and the off the beaten track Japan. And so we get to take people way out into the country um, and they see a, a way of life that really hasn't changed much in, in centuries. It's still huh. very, very slow. Uh, we get into an area called the Ia Valley where they're still raising buckwheat for soba noodles and scrimping by making, growing their own vegetables. And it's a very, it's a tough and rigorous life, but they take great pride and joy in what they do. And there's amazing hot springs there. There's beautiful mountains, walking trails. Uh, these rope vine bridges that are quite spectacular that go back uh, historically way back for centuries. And so history comes to life. Traditional Japanese culture comes to life. So the interactions of the people, the, the old style rural interactions yeah, of people. It sounds magical. We just have to it take another quick break. Uh, but don't turn that dial. We'll be back with more with Don George.
You're listening to The Travel Show, even though we're not traveling right now. This is late April when we're taping, but we're talking about why hopefully we'll all go back out into the world when we can. We were speaking with Don George about the island of uh, and, and just Shikoku. Our, Shikoku. I, I was going to say Okoku, but I knew that didn't sound right. Shikoku uh, in Japan. Don George is the writer of a terrific uh book of travel essays called The Way of Wanderlust. He works for GOX as a tour guide. He has written for countless publications. And I was I was reading some of your writings to prepare for this. And in one of them, you said that if this was a normal year, you would have been in Japan right now. But it isn't. So you tried to bring some of Japan into your daily life. You, you're in San Francisco, right? Your your right, dad. Right. I know you had a question about that, right, Dad? I certainly did. You know, I've been reading works by Don George all my life, and this is the first opportunity I've had to learn about his history and and about his uh, <laughs> connection to Japan. So th- I find this fascinating, Pauline. So you're <laughs> you're in San Francisco. You're in lockdown, uh, but you can get out a little bit. How did you bring Japan to San Francisco? Recently, so I, I live in a in a suburb of San Francisco in the East Bay, as we call it here. And um, right, I woke up actually it was Earth Day morning. I woke up and uh, was looking at the four white walls of my room and thinking, boy, at this time last year I was in Japan admiring the cherry blossoms. Mm. A much different, a pink petaled view rather than the white walls of my room. And I decided I just really impromptuly decided I want to get out and see some cherry blossoms. And so I began wandering around. My town is quite small, and I there were a couple of places I knew had cherry trees. So I went there, but they were past the season. They weren't showing the blossoms anymore. And I was ready to give up and just sort of say with a sigh, you know, cherry blossoms for me this year. And just something inside me said, why don't you go to the town park? And I couldn't even, I didn't even remember that there were actually cherry trees in the town park, but something inside me was saying, go to the town park. So I I did, and when I crested the hill that leads to the park, right there, gloriously blooming, were two cherry trees. Mm. And so I always thought, this is it, this is it. And then I realized that one of the most beloved things in Japan for me is something called the Ohanami, which is a cherry blossom viewing party, where when the cherry blossoms bloom in Japan in April and the whole country shuts down for a few days, they go and sit under the trees with the, on blue tarps, and they bring sake and wonderful food. and sing and dance and just have a great time. So I ran home, got a special bottle of sake that I'd been saving for a special occasion and a little beautiful sake cup that had been given to my wife and me as a wedding present and ran back up to the park, (laughs) ran to the park, positioned myself under the cherry blossoms and had my sake and uh, was instantly transported back a year before when I'd been under a cherry tree in Kyoto sipping sake, and and suddenly Kyoto was just all around me in my little town here in Northern California. I was surrounded by Kyoto, transported Mm. back to the the, the delightful woman who was selling cherry blossom gelato in the coffee shop that was selling cherry blossom cheesecake, and just all of the cherry blossomness of Kyoto in April surrounded me in in beautiful little Piedmont, California here. You know, my daughter... uh, Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say my daughter Tons took a gap year. Beautiful trip. 
Yeah. And she, uh, my daughter on her gap year went to Japan for, I think it was three or four months. I can't remember. And I got to visit her right after cherry blossom season. And when you're, when you're talking about the cherry blossom gelato and the cherry blossom that this, they have special foods just for that season. Right. But they're not, they're not, are, are they made of cherry blossoms? They're not, are they? Well, sometimes they incorporate <laughs> cherry blossoms. <laughs> Oftentimes they're just pink. <laughs> right. But right. Um, it's, it's just part, I mean, even McDonald's has their cherry blossom shake. It's, uh, it becomes part of, it's part of the culture with this collective fascination and almost worship of the cherry blossom. And they're really prized for their exquisite ephemeral beauty, the fact that they're incredibly beautiful and they blossom so gorgeously, but also that they they fade away so quickly, one or two weeks and they're gone. And that for the Japanese is this very poignant remembrance that life is beautiful and intense and amazing, but also passes quickly. So let's really, really appreciate it while we've got it. And I, I love that that feeling that resonates with me really deeply. So I, I, I really appreciate the fact that Japan they drop everything in Japan in April and they stop to celebrate and really enjoy those cherry blossoms for the brief effinescent moment of their blooming. And then they go back to, to work, but they, they honor the cherry blossoms in that way. And I love that. So I got to do that in Piedmont uh, ah. this year. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> I was also taken by the fact that before this all happened and the world shut down, you had a virtual travel experience. You were lucky enough to get to go to the archives of the National Geographic oh. and uh, just go through their collection of famous travel photos. I'm wondering, is any of that collection online? Some some of it is, yeah. I've, um, so I'm very, very, very lucky. I'm an editor-at-large for National Geographic Travel. And... Um, their assignment, this assignment, they, basically the editor-in-chief called me up and said, Don, I've got this great assignment for you. I'm really excited about it. And I said, fantastic. And I thought he was going to, this was back when we were still traveling. I thought he was sending me to Aichutaki or somewhere wonderful far away. And he said, I want you to come and spend a week in the ba- in the basement of the National Geographic <laughs> building. And I thought, hmm, that doesn't sound so exciting. But it really was amazing. They, they, I spent a, a week in the photo archives. There are millions of photos there, and uh, you know what? I, I need you to some of them. I need you to hold that thought because we're gonna. We have to take another quick break. Uh, but when we get back, we'll be talking more with Don George about what he discovered in the basement of the National <laughs> Geographic. Be right back. This is the Fromer Travel Show. Even though it's not a time of travel, we're still talking about culture and cuisine and the rest of the world so that our travel muscles don't get flax so that we can actually get out and see there, see see the world when this all ends, when this uh, time of no travel ends, and it will end. So we've been talking with Don George. When we left, 
he was in the basement of the National <laughs> Geographic to look at their extraordinary photo collection and having a virtual travel experience. That probably holds you well today, doesn't it, Don? It does. It really does. It was a... Uh... It really was an amazing experience. I didn't know what it would be like. And it's just, it's it's one of those accordion drawer things after another running from the, you know, the floor to the ceiling, basically. There's a whole series of them holding more than a million photos. And um, every day I would go down into the archives and go to a different place. One of the most memorable was I asked to see the photos from the first, the Machu Picchu, Hiram Bingham expedition. Ah. Uh, you know, the man who, quote unquote, discovered Machu Picchu and and brought it to light. And you could see the before and after photos, which I'd never seen before. So they took photos. The expedition took photos when they first arrived, which was basically just jungle. And then two months later, after they cleared off parts of the site, you could see, oh, my gosh, this is what was hiding under that jungle. That's incredible. But for me, even more incredible was the fact that I'd been there a couple of years ago. So I was standing in my brain. I was remembering standing in the exact same spot where I, I saw Hiram Bingham standing and I could see the spot before it had been uncovered. And so it was this kind of multi-layered experience of Machu Picchu as a place of great wonder and discovery. And I felt a real a, a, a frisson, a, a, you know, good symbols, kind of being in that moment in that one place and seeing the layers of history in that place. Um, it was quite extraordinary. And I got to travel around the world without leaving the basement and hmm. got to appreciate what National Geographic has meant through the, through the years to people, how it kind of brings the world to you. Yeah. And especially in the early days when no one was going anywhere, that uh, Machu not going the way you know we normally sure. have been doing it in a lifetime. Machu Picchu, the, the issue of the magazine was, I think, 164 pages of National Geographic magazine. Wow. Every single page was devoted to Machu Picchu. Now, give me a, <laughs> remind me of the history. Did, the, did Hiram, did he know about it from the locals? How did he know where to clear yes. away the brush? Or could he see the outlines underneath the tangled jungle? Not really. He met a, a boy. I mean, they were there'd been talk, you know, rumors for a long, long time about hidden jungle, hidden jungle cities, and he was went down in search of them. And this was he was in this was one area where that, those rumors were persistent. And he just happened to meet a small boy who said, "I can take you there." Huh. And the boy led him, and they got there. And you know, peering through the jungle, they could discern. Oh my gosh, there's an extraordinary city here. And that was how it happened. But but from a distance, you couldn't see anything but jungle. Right. So it was really this, this young boy who, who made it happen. Although nowadays and they're doing that by, they're doing archaeology yeah. with photos from the sky. And you could often see right. the outlines. Amazing. We are speaking it, with Don George. He is a wonderful travel writer. Get his book of essays. It's called The Way of Wanderlust. And you said, we've got about two minutes left in this segment. You said at the start that France was really important to you over the years. Why Why is that? Why France? And why Paris? I was, well, so I, I studied French literature and French culture in, in college. It, there was some intrinsic 
attraction there. I'm not quite sure why, although actually my family is partly from France, so maybe that's why. Huh. Um, but I, I went to Paris and I just fell in love with Paris and I fell in love with waking up in the morning and getting out in the street. And it seemed to me that this was such an immersion in, in the world. And I learned in Paris, the first place I really learned this, that the classroom for me is the world. The world has become my classroom. And at the time that I lived in Paris, I wanted, I thought I would go back to Princeton or somewhere and get a, a PhD and become a professor of literature. And living in Paris changed that and made me realize that I wanted to get a PhD in, in the world, basically. And I, <laughs> Actually, being a travel writer is, you get a PhD in the world. And so that's, my life changed in Paris. And it means a lot to me for that reason. Yeah. Well, and it's a place where the world seems to come to you because it's a place that's joyously intellectual, where people sit and argue at cafes the great issues of the day, uh, where, where, where the world is. That's how I take it, at least. And I know my father totally. feels the same, <laughs> you know, that it's it's this it's this place that is so in love with the world and so uh, enmeshed in, in the culture of, of not just France, but the entire globe. I mean, it really is a global community, especially today. All right. I'm looking at the clock. We have to take one last break. When we come back, we're going to ask Don, why should people travel again after this is over? So don't turn that dial. We'll be right back. Okay, we've been ending these recent pandemic versions of the travel show asking every guest the same question. And the question is, why? Why travel? I think uh, there's going to be a lot of fear out there about traveling. Uh, there's uh, there's reasons not to travel right now. And we're not saying jump up and go out right now. But in the near future, John, Don, why is it important to travel? For me, travel gives you riches that you just can't get any other way. It expands you as a human being. It makes you aware of the incredible diversity of intricate wonders that are make the world such a special place uh, for, for everyone who lives here. And it, it also teaches us how, well, how much we have in common with people all around the world, whatever the differences in background and belief, this kind of fundamental humanity. So for me, I... I, travel is my religion, really. Um, travel is my, the world is my church. And I, I think that the more people travel, the more we understand how little divides us. And mm, yeah. I think travel paves the pathway to peace and understanding and appreciation, makes us all better human beings, better citizens of the planet, um, gives us riches we can't get any other way. You said something, one of your essays I thought was very beautiful. You said you hope when this pandemic ends that we'll be able to tackle the other pandemics that nobody talks about, the mm -hmm. pandemics of ignorance and poverty. And uh, I, I can't remember the other two that you, you mentioned, but those are the things you see when you're a traveler. You see not only how the commonalities, but the shared problems and how each culture deals with them differently and how we can learn from other cultures. Would you agree? Right. Absolutely. We have so much we can learn from other places. And if you go somewhere with an open mind and an open heart, 
it, it will change you. You will become a bigger, better person. And uh, every culture has its unique attributes and, and riches and solutions to common problems. And yes, there's so much to be learned from from traveling the world without imposing your own views on the world. I think it's really critical. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we've been speaking with Don George. Once again, he is a widely published author. Uh, but if you want to get a really good compilation of his works, and I, I suggest you do because it'll take you out, it'll transform your day into a better one. Uh, pick up The Way of Wanderlust, which is his latest collection of essays. And we also hope that you'll visit us at fromers.com. Uh, you know, you don't have to be planning a trip to go there. We have lots of fun material, recipes for cocktails made at the world's greatest hotel bars. Uh, we have Zoom backgrounds. If you're doing a Zoom meeting and you want to add a little spice of travel to it, we have that on fromers.com. There's just so much fun things to see and dream about and read at our website, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com. So we hope you'll visit us there. Thank you, Don. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you, Pauline and Arthur. I love you both. Thanks for the great work you do. Thank you. And to those who are traveling, even if it's only... We wish you a hearty bon voyage. 